Well, we want to turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians, and we are drawing near the end, very, very close to the end. In fact, after this morning, we will only have one more sermon uh, left in this study, which has been, for me, so, so wonderfully enriching. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, and we will be looking at uh, verses 19 to 22, a very uh, small section, but uh, some very profound teaching in that section. We want to work our way through that command by command, a series of five commands that Paul gives as he wraps up the section here on instructions uh, for church responsibilities. And uh, they're very terse and, and direct as he wraps up his, his letter and he leaves some very, very important instruction for right at the end uh, before he closes off his letter with a very, very wonderful uh, benediction uh, beginning in verse 23. But to, to set the context once again, just to remind us where we have been located over the past several weeks, uh, we are in this final section that begins in chapter 5, verse 12, and goes to the end of chapter 5, verse 22, where Paul is dealing with these exhortations regarding church life. Remember, if we go back to 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, Timothy had brought a report back to the Thessalonians and had, had, uh, had told Paul about some of the things that were lacking in the Thessalonians' faith. Paul had been untimely removed from that, that setting, and so Paul was greatly concerned about the instruction that this church still needed. But in addition to that, he did hear of some things that were concerning and he deals with those concerning things in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And as I said, in these last few verses of chapter 5, he, he gives this list of 15 exhortations. And they're all very, very short, they're terse, they're to the point as he wraps up this letter. We've seen already that some of these exhortations related to how the church was to respond to its leaders. Some of the exhortations dealt with how the church was to minister to one another on a, on a horizontal level. Some of those exhortations, those that we studied two weeks ago, dealt with worship and how the church was to fulfill its obligations and duties on a vertical level in, in the sense of rejoicing and praying and being thankful in all things. And now we come to the final section here on the exhortations regarding church life that deal with the very interesting topic of prophecy. And, and this is one that uh, for us is, is a very fascinating subject. It, it deals with a, a transitional time in the church's life. And so we wonder, how does this relate to us? Do we even need to study this? And I think that as we go through this section this morning, we'll see that this is very, very helpful for us. And it does uh, provide us with a framework for how we are to approach spiritual instruction. So in this fourth section, the Apostle Paul provides these responsibilities of church members to prophecy. Let's look at those, the, the, those exhortations here now in verses 19 to, to 22. It should be verse 22 there on the screen. Paul writes this, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully, Hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. As we 
break this text down a little bit into more manageable chunks, we'll see that it, it breaks up really nicely between, uh, be between two halves. The, the first part of this really deals with what not to do with respect to spiritual instruction. And that will be found in verses 19 and 20, what not to do with spiritual instruction. Paul begins, as he so often does, with the prohibitions, the, the negatives. It's a common way of teaching for Paul, both in terms of just his regular instruction and as well as in his exhortations. He'll start with negatives and then, and then move to the positives. And he begins here with the negatives. And, and we're going to look at that, those two verses, those two commands, and see what not to do with spiritual instruction. And then in the second half, we will see what to do with spiritual instruction in verses 21 and 22. Now, immediately, this, this uh, topic of prophecy raises a, a key question. You know, how are we to understand uh, the prophecy as it took place there in the Thessalonian church going back all the way to AD 50? We, we've already mentioned this numerous times throughout our study uh, that this letter, 1 Thessalonians, is probably Paul's very first canonical letter. Paul planted the church in Thessalonica in AD 50, and he writes to that same church about six months later at most. It was very much still a, a new church, a fresh church. And this is during a time, let's remember, that there wasn't any other uh, materials that were circulating like our New Testament. Now, the, the only other letter that had been written by this time was probably James's letter. You look in your, your Bibles uh, to, to the letter of James, that letter was, it was our first New Testament writing, written probably five years before 1 Thessalonians. It's highly likely that that letter had not even made it to Thessalonica yet. So the church in, in Thessalonica, having been assembled by the great work of God and his work of election and, and, and regeneration, bringing that assembly into being, was in existence, just think of it, without a New Testament. They didn't have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They certainly didn't have the book of Acts. They appear in it as, as part of the narrative of Acts. And up until this very letter, they didn't even have 1 Thessalonians. They didn't have any New Testament book in their possession. And so all they had was oral teaching up until they get this letter. Uh, they're basing it off of what they had heard from the Apostle Paul, but not only that, God in his wisdom, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to, to help the church to mature and to protect the church against false doctrine, the Holy Spirit had gifted certain men in that church as well as all the other local churches at that time with what we call the spiritual gift of prophecy, one of the revelatory gifts. These gifts that were necessary as the, as the churches were being planted before the, the, the New Testament was all gathered together and and, and put into their hands. They, they had to survive. They, they had to grow in, in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How was that going to happen? 
Paul couldn't be in the Thessalonian church. We see that very vividly. He was prohibited from being there. And meanwhile, he and the other apostles are planting churches all over the Roman Empire. How was it possible for these churches to survive, to grow, to to thrive, and to defend themselves against the onslaught of of false teaching? Well, these prophets were, were, were essential in that, and the Holy Spirit gifted certain men with these revelatory gifts, and the apostles were, were traveling from place to place to preach, but these prophets were needed in, in local churches, in, in, a, in a permanent role in that time to stay in those local churches and to provide prophetic instruction, Word, words from the Lord, both in terms of the right understanding of who Jesus is, as well as, in some cases, some a predictive elements as well. These, these prophets were involved in that as well. Now, a text that explains this elsewhere in Paul's writings is a text from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 11. And this is a key text as we begin our study of this, this text in 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effect of miracles, and the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, as this text teaches, and as we would look at all of Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts, we would find that these gifts come as a manifestation of the Spirit. It was, it was his ministry to equip individuals within each local congregation uh, with these gifts, and as we've read, many of these gifts were, were quite miraculous in nature. And they were so miraculous and dramatic because, remember, at that time, you, you don't have a New Testament, and there needed to be words from, from the Lord that would come and, and minister to the congregation, and, and they needed proof, and so there'd be these sign gifts that would accompany that to indicate that, yes, this was indeed from the Lord. Very important ministry for the health and well-being of those early churches. And as we read in that text in 1 Corinthians, that this was all given for the prosperity of the church, for the common good it was necessary. Certainly the Lord loves the church. And, and the Spirit was that agent which equipped members in the church to, 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 the, to, to affect these operations which would enable the church to grow and to thrive. Now, stepping back to 1 Thessalonians then, in light of what we've just read, it appears that something had caused the Thessalonians to to have a kind of cynicism toward prophecy. Paul has to tell them what not to do with spiritual instruction. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances. Something in that context had caused them to have this attitude toward prophecy, which, which meant that they just, they just rejected everything. They did not 
sense the need to have any kind of revelatory ministry whatsoever in their presence. They, they shunned it. They rejected it. And so Paul has to correct them on that. They needed it in the absence of this, uh, of this canon of, of the New Testament. So when Timothy comes back, he brings back this news to Paul, and Paul recognizes this shunning of prophecy as a distinct deficiency in the faith of the Thessalonians. They would not grow if they kept on this pathway. They would not be in the place where they needed to be if they would continue to quench the Spirit's operations and reject all revelatory activity. Now, Paul does not describe what, what, what this cause was. And we have to be careful about speculation. We, we don't know what led the Thessalonians to this attitude. But at best, we can speculate that it, it probably had something to do with how some in the church had made false prophecies about future things. Remember, in this study of 1 Thessalonians, when we got into chapter 4, verse 13, all the way to chapter 5, verse 11, we see this this very detailed instruction and corrective on matters pertaining to eschatology, the the matters of, or the teaching of the the future times. And and so it's very likely that some in the church had made silly prophecies about the day of the Lord, uh, about the coming of Christ, uh, about the resurrection of the dead. They were wrong, they were false, misleading, And as a result, the Thessalonians had this knee-jerk reaction and just said, okay, that's it. We're not going to listen to any prophecies whatsoever. And so Paul has to to correct them on that. But as we're going to see, not only did he have to make sure that he corrected them about what not to do with this spiritual instruction, he also wanted to be sure that they wouldn't swing to the other extreme and naively then accept everything that claimed to be a word from the Lord. One commentator summarizes the balance that Paul seeks here, the wisdom that he, that he seeks to impart with these words. Paul did not wish the church to become so cynical that they treated with contempt those who came with the word of prophecy. Neither was the church to be so gullible that they accepted whatever a so-called prophet said without carefully weighing it and determining that it was indeed a true word of God. So what we really see in these verses of 19 to 22 of chapter 5 is a balanced perspective on on what to do with spiritual instruction, instruction that originates in the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at the first part of that instruction, what not to do with spiritual instruction. Here's the corrective Paul says in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. The verb quench there is is a rare verb, and it is used most often wherever it is found to refer to extinguishing. And so, for example, you'd see it in Ephesians 6 verse 16. If you go back and look at that text there, Paul describes the shield of faith which is able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. So in those days, they would coat the the shields with some kind of anti-flammable material so that when the arrows that were on fire would hit the shield, they, they would 
be snuffed out, the, the idea of extinguishing, of quenching. Here Paul uses it, however, not in that literal sense, but in the figurative sense, in the idea of suppressing or, or stifling. And, and that which he says not to stifle is the Holy Spirit. The, the very one that, that was responsible for imparting spiritual gifts. It's the Spirit. Now what's fascinating, just as a side note, in this section here that you do find a wonderful Trinitarian uh, reference in that if you just look back at verse 18, in, in verse 18, Paul talks about the will of God, that's the will of the Father, in, in Christ Jesus, that's the Son, and then he immediately in verse 19 moves to talk about the Holy Spirit. And just a kind of a side observation there, you see Paul emphasizing different aspects of the triune Godhead, God the Father being the, the one who determines and, and who decrees, and, and then you have the, the Son, the one into whom we are, we are unified in our salvation, and then you have the Spirit, the agent of these spiritual gifts. And Paul says to the, to the Thessalonians, he says, stop being an obstacle to the Holy Spirit. You have to cease from this, Thessalonians. This is not what you are to do with much-needed spiritual instruction. He then continues in the second imperative in this section, verse 20, with a follow-up. Now, this second exhortation, as part of the, the description of what not to do with spiritual instruction, takes things a little bit more specific. In the first exhortation, it was very general. Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. Now in this next, exhort next exhortation, he now explains, he unfolds it a little bit more and gets to the heart of what was happening there. He says this in verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances. Now, the verb there for despise is a, is a very strong verb. It, it indicates something that the Thessalonians were doing already. They were despising it. And this term can be used in some cases to just describe an attitude, a kind of a, an attitude of treating as, as of no worth. But it is also used in some cases to describe an action, that the attitude doesn't just remain an attitude, but actually translates into action. And it appears that the Thessalonians were already in this second category of, of action in that they were taking steps to reject, to forbid any kind of prophesying within their midst. Again, this is a very strong verb. We find it, for example, in Luke 23, verse 11, the same verb, where it describes that Herod and, and the soldiers treated Jesus with contempt at his, at, at, at his trial. That, that's the idea, to treat with contempt, to have no use for something, to reject, to, to, to consider something of, of no worth, Whatsoever. Now, what was it that they were treating this way in the Thessalonian context? And Paul says that what they were doing was treating prophetic utterances with such disrespect. Literally, we could translate that as simply prophecies. It's in the, it's in the plural indicating that this was not just a, a general malaise. This was against every prophetic utterance, every prophecy that 
that the Spirit was moving prophets to give, the Thessalonians were immediately canceling it out, saying, we're not going to listen. Now, what is that gift of prophecy? What was it involved with? And, and what did it focus on? And we don't have time to get into a, a lengthy uh, survey on this particular point, but in general, if we'd survey uh, the, the New Testament gift of prophecy, it, it's the same kind of prophecy, really, that you find in the Old Testament. It's, it's no different. They, the Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets were engaged in what we would call foretelling and forthtelling. They would give divine words of God that related both to the future, foretelling, as well as to what God has already said, which is forthtelling. They would give instructions and show how already revealed truth would be applied to brand new situations. They would bring with all the authority of God's own voice the truth of God to bear on everyday life. They were involved in proclaiming God's will as, as well as in telling the future. An example of this is Agabus. You probably re recall this from Acts chapter 11, verse 28, uh, when Paul and Barnabas... This is way back, even before Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, he's in Syrian Antioch at the church there, and, and he and Barnabas are ministering there in that local congregation. And, and here you have a, a prophet by the name of Agabus. And Agabus gives a divine word. He says, uh, Luke records it this way. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world. There you have a word from a prophet. Well, these Thessalonians were directly hindering their own spiritual growth by rejecting these words. And Paul says this has got to stop. Paul put a premium at this time on the need for this spiritual instruction. Again, put yourselves in those shoes. In, in the, the shoes of the Thessalonians, no New Testament, no Gospels, no letters, no book of Revelation, nothing. And yet you are in Christ, you've believed in the Gospel, you heard this preaching of him, and now you're trying to live the Christian life and you're wondering, what do I do with food sacrificed to idols? Uh, what do I do with the civic gatherings that were so intertwined with paganism in those days? What do I do in my family, with my kids, with my wife? How do I look at marriage? How do I consider prayer? What, what do I think about prayer? You don't have that instruction which we so, uh, so desperately need. And in fact, for most Christians today, if you'd ask them to live for a while without their New Testament, they wouldn't know, know what to do. The Old Testament for us is, is largely set aside because of, of all the material we find in the, the New Testament related to our life here and now in the church age. But think what it would be like without that New Testament. Paul prioritized this prophetic gift. He says in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1, he says, pursue love desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but he says, I, I desire especially that you there in, in, in the Corinthian congregation would prophesy. 
He says a little bit later on in that same context, he says, here's why. Here's why prophecy was so important. The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Three very important ministries. Edification, being built up. Exhortation, being admonished and corrected. And and then consolation, being comforted. Those are the important ministries that prophetic instruction has in our lives. He goes on to compare it with the speaking of to- in tongues and says the speaking in tongues doesn't edify the, the, anywhere near the, the same way that, that the prophet edifies the church. So Paul says, Thessalonians, cease this. Stop rejecting prophecy. And then he transitions to describe what to do with spiritual instruction. Again, like I've said, he, he's not just wanting them to accept everything. That's not the solution to their problems. That would lead to a, a potentially even greater damage if they just opened themselves to anyone who claimed to have a word from the Lord. So he immediately follows up on that instruction with a set of Exhortations, three of them, dealing with how to deal with spiritual instruction. He says, first of all, here's the general command. He says, but examine everything carefully. The, the conjunction but there indicates that he's made a, a change here from, from prohibitions to positive exhortations. And the first one is that he calls upon every one of them. Understand, this is not just to the church leaders. This is to everyone in the Thessalonian congregation. He says, examine everything carefully. It's a present tense imperative. It means this is to be your your, your habitual activity. Be in this this continual process of of examination. The the verb actually means to to make a, a critical examination of something so as to determine genuineness. In a sense, you could put it this way, exercise critical thinking. Exercise critical thinking. And he says, do this with respect to everything. Now, in the immediate context here, Paul is speaking specifically about anyone who would come with authoritative instruction and say, this is a word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. And Paul is saying to the church, listen, if anyone comes to you with instruction and says, this is binding, if anyone comes to you with with a set of of commands and says, this is from the Lord, or or comes to you with some kind of of doctrinal uh, set of, of, of details about who the Lord is, about the nature of the future, and so on, Paul says, you have to examine it. You have to look at it carefully. Now, why did he say that? Now, remember, this is 8050, just 20 years after the church began on the day of Pentecost. But already by this time, Satan certainly was doing all that he could to corrupt the spread of the gospel, to corrupt the, the church. We read of it, for example, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 to 15. Paul writes that letter about five years after 1 Thessalonians. And notice how he describes the father of lies, Satan. He says this in this section related to false apostles. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder... 
For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Paul is saying, look, this is not a sterile world. We don't live in a world of neutrality. There is positive pressure against us in terms of lies, and those lies don't appear to us in all of their hideousness. It's not how Satan operates. He doesn't come to us and, 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 and try to promote an ideology that, that, that is, is evident in its ugliness and its, its hideous consequences. He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he, he takes some elements of truth and, and he then dis- disguises the lie with those, those elements of truth. And he does so, as Paul says, just as an angel of light. And not only he does that, but his servants do as well. Men who travel around and teach different things. They're going to they're use the same terms, but they're going to they're put those terms together differently. They're going to point to something else, and, and slowly they're going to infiltrate the church, and they're going to corrupt the church's doctrine. Near the end of the century, about 50 years later, 40 years later, the Apostle John writes the same thing. By this time... Uh, the growth of false teaching was rampant. There was far more false teaching by this time than there were true churches. And John writes this to those churches in Asia Minor. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. That, that, there's the same verb as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21. Test, test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because Many false prophets have gone out into the world. So right from the very beginning, the apostles are instructing members of the church, not just the leadership, but every Christian is to have a certain approach to anyone who would come with with authoritative instruction. And they were to test They were to evaluate, they were to examine, they were to discern, they were to distinguish truth from error, right from wrong. Now you might say, well, how did they do that? They didn't have a New Testament. How did they engage in this process of of examination? Well, if we look at the whole New Testament to see what was taught to the churches in person by the apostles and through their own letters, we can come up with a a series of five basic tests that were important in the discernment of truth. Five tests that were important, five standards you can call them, which served as the, the, the model of truth and everything else was to be examined to see whether it conformed. We'll go through these very quickly. These slides will... I'll be uploaded to the webpage, so if you want to look at them later, you can. Uh, But let me go through these quickly because of time. First of all, the first standard was what we can call apostolic conformity. Apostolic conformity. The message that came from anyone who claimed to have a word of the Lord had to conform to the apostles' preaching. 
The apostles had already been involved in planting churches. They had left the, the churches with what they call traditions, these, these uh, important doctrinal truths. And so if anyone was going to be engaged in the, in the work of instruction, their teaching had to, to conform to what the apostles laid as the foundation. Even 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says this. He says, Now I praise you, Corinthians, because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. You hold firmly to the traditions. That was standard number one. Conformity to that apostolic preaching. Number two, Christological orthodoxy. Christological orthodoxy. The message had to affirm the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. Obviously, in in the New Testament church, just as it is today, uh, Jesus Christ is now the climax of God's activity, his redemptive work and his revelatory activity, as Hebrews chapter 1 speaks. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. And so if there is any prophecy, any instruction that was given in those New Testament churches, their message had to affirm important truths about Jesus Christ. You can see that, for example, in, in, back in, in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, here the apostle John gives these words. He says in, in 1 John 4, he says, but this you know, but by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So a more specific element of that apostolic conformity had to do with the person of Jesus. And you can look at 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 3. You can look further at 1 John 4. You can look at 2 John 7 to 11. Those texts put key emphasis on the need for prophets to conform their teaching to right doctrine about Jesus Christ. That was the key point. Did they teach rightly about Jesus, both in his humanity and in his deity? Number three, scriptural fidelity. Scriptural fidelity. The the message had to be faithful to the established Old Testament and the new writings that were coming into being. This is a fascinating thing to look at. We know this in terms of, of the Old Testament. You go to a text like uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Remember the Bereans. Paul shows up in the synagogue there in Berea, which was just south of Thessalonica, southwest, just a, a couple of days of journey. Paul shows up there and he preaches. And what did the Bereans do? They examined everything according to the scriptures. Paul shows up, he is preaching prophetically. But what they do is they take Paul's message and then they go back to the Old Testament scriptures and ask, does this conform? And they found that Paul's teaching conformed exactly. So there was conformity to the Old Testament, but notice this, there was also this need as this third standard that the prophets had to conform to the writings of the New Testament that were just coming into being. Look at a little bit later in this chapter of 1 Thessalonians 5. 
Look at the authority that Paul places on the letter that he is just sending to the Thessalonians. He has just written this letter. He's signing off. And notice what he says in verse 27. I adjure you by the Lord. It is the strongest command he can make. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. You flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14, which is written just months after 1 Thessalonians, Paul is recognizing his own letter now is, is being added to Scripture in terms of its authority. It was binding on, on the church. So chapter 3, verse 14 of 2 Thessalonians says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, notice how he's using his writing as the standard. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate him so that he will be put to shame. Don't reject prophecy, but reject anyone who rejects the letter. Don't shun prophets, but shun anyone who does not accept the letter. Number four, prophetic integrity. Uh, the, The members of those congregations of the first century, before they had the the canon, were also to look at the character of the one making the prophecy. It's a very important theme that runs throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself said, for example, in in Matthew 7 verse 15, as, as he foretells the ministry of prophets, he says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. So Jesus, in Matthew 7, gives the standard and says, this is how you must judge prophecies. Look at the prophet. Fresh water doesn't come from a salt water spring. And you're going to know the fruits, or by the fruits, you're going to know the roots. And so he, he commands his disciples, to look at the life of the prophet, Paul does the same thing. We could look at 1 Thessalonians 2. We've been through that. Chapter 2, Paul emphasizes as, as he reflects upon the ministry that he had entering into Thessalonica. Notice what he does in chapter 2, verse 4 to 7 of 1 Thessalonians. He puts a lot of emphasis on his own integrity and says, You're gonna know, this is the truth. This is how you defend against the attacks from the outside. Remember my integrity. Remember my integrity. Prophetic integrity. And finally, corporate prosperity. This was the fifth and, and uh, final general standard by which to judge the prophecies. And what do I mean by corporate prosperity? Well, this means that the message always had to lead to the edification of the whole church. Prophecy wasn't prophecy if it was just for personal advancement. That was never a role of prophecy in the early church. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3 to 5, he says, the one who prophesies speaks for edification, exhortation, and consolation. And he said back in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians that this was always for the, the benefit of the whole body. So if any prophecy came that was selfish or self-centered or focused on an individual, That was grounds to reject it. That's not the kind of prophecy the Spirit would lead into the church. Now, after using these standards then, what does Paul call upon them to do? Come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, look at the second half of verse 21. Very simply, he says, hold fast 
to that which is good. Hold fast. Another strong verb here. It means to grip tightly in that literal sense. It means to, in a more figurative sense, to adhere firmly to traditions, convictions, beliefs. It, it, it emphasizes tenacity. That after you have applied these tests, then that which passes the test, hold on to and hold on fast. This is not, this is not material that you can just let go and you can't be ambivalent toward it. If it passes the test, it is an authoritative word of God and you must hold to it. And he says that it's the good, it's the instruction that is found to meet the standard and is therefore beneficial to the church. But he also says, abstain then from every form of, of evil. The, the verb for abstain is, is another strong verb and it is a verb that is the exact antithesis to the verb to hold fast. This is the idea of avoiding contact with. Paul essentially says to the Thessalonians, treat prophecies that fail the test, treat them like the plague. Treat them like a disease. Avoid any contact with it. Reject it, refuse it, cast it out. There will be much of this, Paul says, throughout his letters, false teachers wolves in sheep's clothing, and the church could not be ambivalent toward that, could not treat it neutrally or lightly. There had to be a strong reaction. In fact, that same verb to abstain is used back in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 when Paul describes what we were to do about sexual immorality. We are to refuse it. We are to stay far from it. We are to have no contact with it. And Paul says, you're to do this with every form of evil. Now, if you're familiar with the King James Version and its translation, the King James says, avoid or abstain from every appearance of evil. And that has sometimes led to a lot of inappropriate false applications. In other words, even if something is good, but it just looks bad, avoid it. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. And the term is better translated not as appearance, as if there is some kind of distinction between substance and what it looks like. Rather, the idea here is, is kind of evil. Every category of evil, every variety of evil, and that evil has specifically to do with teaching, with instruction. Every prophecy that fails the test is evil. It's not neutral. We don't live in that kind of sterile environment. If it fails the test, reject it. Stay away from it. Now in closing, just a quick note, and, and before I draw a few points of application here, the the case or the situation of the Thessalonians is different from ours. And we don't have time to go into it today, but we don't need gifts of prophecy today because we have all of that instruction in, a, in what we call a, a canon, a standard. Uh, all those five things that we looked at really have been encapsulated in the New Testament as well as in the foundation of the Old Testament. 
Now, if you're struggling with understanding the issues of, you know, should we still expect words of prophecy today? Like I said, I can't get into that this morning, but I want to point you toward what would be a really helpful seminar. Uh, Tom Pennington, uh, back in, I think it was 2013, when uh, Grace Church hosted the Strange Fire Conference, did a very, very helpful seminar called A Case for Cessationism. A Case for Cessationism. And if you're wondering about this, you can go to the Grace to You website, www.gty.org, and listen to Pastor Tom's uh, seminar on this. Very, very helpful. Perhaps one of the best summaries uh, of the issue. I'll, I'll, I'll turn you to that. But in closing, some applications, because this text still does instruct us today. This isn't just a, uh, an instruction to a bygone era. What can we draw from it? A couple of ideas. First of all, what is your attitude towards spiritual instruction? Well, what the Thessalonians were grappling with in their day does, does show, it, it's, it's analogous to a, a broader issue, and that is how do we look at, at spiritual instruction, at the need that we have to be trained in righteousness, in truth? What is your, your attitude to it? Do, do you neglect it? Are you like those Thessalonians in that they said, we don't need this, we don't want this, it's too hard, I, I, I just want to be simple in my life, J- just give me my spirituality and that's good enough. Or are, are on, you, on the other hand, are you just open to everything? You turn on the TV and there's some spiritual show and, and you sit down and you, you give your next hour to it and just, wow, I never knew that. Is that your approach? What, what is your attitude to spiritual instruction? Secondly, how vigorous is your discipline of discernment? Think of those five standards, apostolic conformity, Christological orthodoxy, scriptural fidelity, prophetic integrity, corporate prosperity. Reflect on those five things and say, do I know how to apply those tests even today when we do have the, the, the completed canon, the standard written for us in the pages of the New Testament, when I have all that in writing and yet people will come with authoritative instruction and say, you got to listen to this. This is what the, the Lord says. Are you able to use those five standards and discern whether they're teaching is, is consistent with God's will. Number three, do you follow through and, and purge that which is found to miss the standard? Are you active in, in examining your own thoughts and your own convictions and beliefs, not just blindly accepting them on the basis of intuition, hey, this, is, this works, and it works for me, and it feels good, but are you active in considering your thinking, your thoughts, what you believe, and working through that systematically, continually, as you hear sermons, as you read the scriptures, and saying, okay, that which is inconsistent, that which does not measure up, I need to purge. I need to get rid of it. I need to stop thinking that way. And then finally, do you tenaciously hold to that which is the good instruction? Do you hold tightly to it? Do you treat it with, with utmost concern and then cultivate it and then communicate it to others? Do you tenaciously hold to genuine 
instruction. Well, these are some wonderful things for us to think about. Let's pray now that the Spirit would take this text and press it deeply within us and do His work with His Word to mature us and make us more like Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this window of your word into a very specific need in the Thessalonian church. We're thankful that your word, even though it is, was so timely to that Thessalonian context, yet it is still timeless and teaches us so much for how we ought to think and act today. We pray that you would give us the the discernment that we need in our time, as the Thessalonians needed in theirs, that we would be able to distinguish between that which is right and wrong, truth and error, that we would not treat these things with with ambivalence, with neutrality. We would take seriously this command that has been given to all believers and that we would faithfully reject and expunge that which does not conform to your truth, and that we would hold tenaciously to the truth, especially in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile and aggressive against us. Make us into the kind of believers that Paul envisioned for these Thessalonians, and we pray this for the glory of Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Amen.